0: We're doing things a little bit different today. Instead of doing our history behind the news from this week, we are going to be doing an interview. I'm going to be talking to someone named Barry Slonway. I think you're really going to love this. So today we're doing a special episode. We're actually going to be talking to Barry White. He is the third president of Compassion Canada. Uh, He's worked with Compassion since 1983, so 35 years and he's been the president and the CEO for 25 years. And before that, he planted two churches. And as a bonus, he grew up in a small village in Nova Scotia. I grew up just one ferry trip away over in Newfoundland, so I'm always excited to meet a fellow Easterner. So welcome, Barry.
1: It's a pleasure.
0: Um, So we were going to be talking today about the book that you wrote, right, Strategic Compassion?
1: That's right, yeah.
0: Yeah, I was able to read that book, and I have to tell you, it was amazing. Like, I absolutely loved it so much.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to hear that.
0: Uh, So, uh, what was your purpose behind uh, writing this book?
1: Well, really, uh, my purpose evolved over the last 35 years of uh, working with compassion, both traveling the world and also working within Canada. So traveling the world, I began to quickly understand that most of the work organizations, governments have been doing to help the poor have failed. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then working within Canada, interacting with Christians and churches, I began to understand that most of our missional strategies really aren't well thought out. So uh, I put the two of those together and said, "No, somebody has to speak up. Somebody has to call the attention to the Christians in Canada that we have to do things differently." And and I think where we have to start is we have to go back to square one and understand the theology of poverty from the biblical perspective. So that's kind of was my motivating factors.
0: Well, it was it was like the whole time reading through it, I'm like. Take notes on it. I'm like, I'm going to highlight this entire book. There's not going to be any space left because I just uh, loved everything. It was so good. Kind. Yeah, thank um, you. You, you brought up something called the Western Savior Complex that I found yes. really interesting. Could you explain that to me?
1: Yeah. So uh, if you've ever read the book When Helping Hurts, uh, the authors there articulate the impact of short term mission trips, uh, both on how many take place every year and how many millions, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, uh, are involved in financing these trips. And they point out the fact that the trips themselves are not wrong, the motivations are not wrong. But sometimes our attitude and our dispositions really mess things up on the other end. So, so you've got to a point, and I, I see this firsthand when I travel abroad and I do a lot of work overseas, we work in 25 countries, as you know, and I, I, I'm with nationals a lot. And whenever there's a North American in the meeting, it seems like all the conversation is directed to the North American and they have all the answers. Hmm. And when I when I press deep, I find it's not because the nationals don't have answers it's because they have been conditioned over centuries that with money comes a voice. And if you want the money, you better listen to the voice. Hmm. And and so that voice of that Westerner, that North American or whoever, uh, carries a huge amount of weight. and And then that's mixed with a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of naivety, and you get this Western savior complex that I refer to.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, that puts a lot. I, I, somebody who's been on missions trips, I know that's something that people talk about a lot that they want to be careful of.
1: <clears throat> I, love, I love mission trips. I, I, am a, I am a big supporter of mission trips. But I firmly believe we have to do them differently. And that starts with, first of all, just training and understanding, teaching why we're why we're doing these, and the real the real answer to why has to be we are investing in the kingdom of God for God's purposes and not our own ego, our own sense of heroism or whatever, because you know, you know yourself, it doesn't take a Canadian to go somewhere and paint a church wall, right, right. There's no reason why the locals can't do that and actually do some job creation. The power, right. the power and the purpose of a mission trip is what it does in us when we go.
0: Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. I think I, I went on a lot of missions trips as a teenager and I think I was probably impacted more, right? Exactly. Like it changes me because you get to see things. What exactly. would you say to a parent? Like I have teenagers. What would you say to a parent um, that would like their kids to go on missions trips and maybe is thinking, you know, I mean, we want them to help other people, but also I want my kids to experience um, missions trips for the sake of also being able to see them grow and be able to see things outside of their um, mm-hmm. bubble.
1: Absolutely. And I'm with you. I have, I have two daughters. They're adults now, but they started going on mission trips. My My eldest went when she was 15 to Guatemala for the entire summer. Uh, my youngest spent a year living in Thailand, volunteering in an AIDS orphanage. So they they've been on mission trips, and I w- I would I would say to them the same thing I would say to everyone: before you go, understand this: you are not going to change the world in two weeks, mm-hmm. but the world can and will change you if you allow it, and God will do that work. And don't go with answers; go with questions. Wow, that's go really good. Go with the attitude you're going to go and build relationships, not build buildings. Mm-hmm. It's, it's irrelevant what you do there. I mean, physically, you know, whether you put a brick wall up like my, my eldest daughter spent the summer in Guatemala building a school. She learned how to mix concrete and lay brick. That's irrelevant. Anybody can do that. But take the time to build relationships because when you talk to the poor, that's what they value. Of course they're not gonna say no to getting their church wall painted or a new roof put on what their school or whatever. i are not gonna say no to that. We wouldn't say no to that here, we right. if somebody <laughs> offered to do that, right? If the Americans came across and said we're gonna build you a new church, say, hey go ahead, help yourself. <laughs> but but what they what they cherish and value is the self esteem, the personal encouragement and meaning of building relationships with people from another country. So, so that's got to be the priority, not getting the job done.
0: Um, you had so many great stories in the books I loved, but there's one that it really jumped out to me personally. It's one where there's the three boys, um, the one yeah. wanted to be a pilot, one wanted to be a police officer, and the third one yeah. said that he had learned not to dream. So oh. I've seen that I've seen that hopelessness even here in Canada. I, I work yes. with foster families and foster children, and so when we see that, um, Christians obviously want to fix that. Like we don't like to see children who have no hope and have no dreams, have no dreams for the future. What would you say a Christian's first step should be, whether it's you know overseas or even just right here in their own community? Well, I
1: I think, and and this is the kind of the thesis of my book is. When we put together our strategies, our plans to help the poor, again, this this applies globally. It applies here as well as there. So when we put our plans together to help the poor, our plans must be built around the gospel. Jesus Christ is the main thing that these people need, whether they're here or there. Now they need other things. So they need food, they need clothing, they need health care, education, whatever. And we must include those in our strategies. But if you leave the gospel component out, then you are you have a you you you're just gonna fail. Because here's the thing all of these other things don't bring hope. Right they bring a little bit of relief they bring you know they make life a little better but lasting hope only comes from one source and that's Jesus Christ and so when when you when you hear me in the book talk about those three boys what those three boys don't need is more foreign aid right They don't need somebody to come along and say, can we build you a better swing, right? They need somebody to introduce them to Jesus Christ because down the road a little bit further, we met similar children who were in the compassion program who had found Jesus Christ, came from the exact same situation, the exact same level of poverty and desperation. But the difference in those children's outlook on life was absolutely staggering. And it was because they had encountered Jesus Christ. So you ask those children, what do you want to be when you grow up? And their face lit up. Mm-hmm. Their, their their whole body language got, got animated when they explained to you what they want to do with their lives. And when you dig deeper, you find out that that inspiration came from hope that came from a relationship with Jesus Christ so that's that's the powerful powerful secret ingredient of any of our poverty alleviation efforts
0: yes yeah, so you were in the book i know you talked a lot about um, how the sim- we can't address the symptoms of poverty um, without addressing the root uh, which is sin, right, and that 's what you 're talking about here about Jesus being able to fix it um, Some people might hear that like if I was to say oh the 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 root um, the root problem of poverty is sin, so some people obviously would find that really offensive. How would you explain that to somebody
1: <laughs> i 'm laughing because i'm just <laughs> i 'm just remembering some very awkward moments in my life where people have been offended by that. One yeah. time I was, speak, I was speaking at a large Christian missions conference, and I was at the end of the conference, all the speakers were sitting on a stool, uh, and the moderator was kind of doing a Q&A with us, and the, the moderator turned to me and said, so you've been teaching on poverty this week at the conference. Could you summarize in, in just a few words, what is the cause of poverty? And I tried to be as succinct as possible, so I said one word. I said, sin. And the moderator was offended. <laughs> he took the microphone from me, he turned his back on me, and he spent the rest of the time speaking to the, the, the other speakers, and he totally, totally ignored me. And I realized then I can never just say one word. Right. I have, I have to explain, because he then afterwards took me aside and said, how dare you? How dare you say that that child's poor because, because they stole a the cookie or because they lied? I'm going, no, you don't understand. It's not the child's sin per se that caused him to be poor or her to be poor. It's sin generically. It's the big picture sin that causes people to treat those children badly, causes their governments to be corrupt and steal from them and not care for them, causes people to do all kinds of bad things to these children. It's that sin that is at the root of poverty, not the individual's sin. And so, so when, I, when I struggled with this, I thought I, I have to write a book and I have to take the time to unpack that short answer.
0: Yeah, I found that chapter really interesting, especially when you're talking about Adam and Eve and Well uh, yeah, if
1: you if you go if you go really trace the root of poverty, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, where God made a perfect world. There was no thought of poverty, there was no word in the in the vocabulary for need or poverty. And then man, Adam and Eve, did something terrible. They disobeyed God They sinned. We teach our children that every action has a consequence. Touch the hot stove, you get burned. Mm -hmm. Adam and Eve acted, and there was a consequence. And that consequence began the chain of events that created poverty. So up until that day, no no consciousness of, of need. After that day, they were consumed with their need, and Adam had to work he he had to dig in the in the ground and fight with thorns and 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 the uh, pesticides all all these things eve had to had to fight against uh physical pain and childbearing and their relationship was was uh, fractured and and on and on and that that kept going and keeps going until today. It's that over all overarching sin that creates the the mechanisms of poverty to be birthed to be to exist and to continue
0: um you were also talking kind of continuing on with that uh, about Jesus, and I never really thought about it before about how much poverty was around him during his lifetime and uh oh. and people really were looking. For a political solution, but he was coming with a spiritual solution.
1: Yeah, they, they were. You know, what, what, we, what we don't realize, most, most Canadians, most North Americans don't realize how poor the world was that Jesus grew up in. I mean, it was a third world. It was a developing world. Anything you would see on a mission trip to any part of the world, you would have seen there. Poverty was rampant. Most people, unless you were either the Romans or the rich, most people struggled to survive one day at a time. The average lifespan in, in the time that Jesus lived on earth, the average lifespan had gone from 700 years down to 35 years.
0: Wow. Wow. I didn't realize that. That's, that's I thought Jesus how, was really young when he died.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, he, to uh, from our standards... But he was approaching the end of his life. That's that's how bad things were, were where Jesus grew up and lived throughout the known world then. So people knew very well firsthand poverty. So when Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth and said, I have come to bring good news to the poor, you can imagine where their minds took them. Right you know he's he 's gonna turn more fish and moles into into buffets uh, he's he's gonna he's gonna start maybe a a new movement to help fight against the oppression of the Romans and take some of the tax dollars and feed it back into helping the poor i mean you can imagine all the dreams that ran through their head and if you read if you read luke 's gospel clearly closely. You find that they pretty quickly figured out that's not what he meant. And they actually, within hours of him stating that in the synagogue, they tried to kill him. So they, yeah. So so people were desperate, but he tried to help them understand that the greatest need any human being has is not for the next meal. It's for the bread of life, the savior, the relationship with their heavenly father. And he came to bridge that, to make that happen. He as I said in the book, he he had the largest feeding program in the world. He was the he was the most renowned and to this day the most renowned medical doctor in history.
0: But yeah, come and,
1: right back from the dead. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But that's not why he came. He came to bring the good news of the gospel.
0: And I know there's um, the one line that really jumped out at me where he said, like, he he had the opportunity to set up um, a political power, but instead he set up the church. And like, whoa, like that's amazing. Like he, he picked the church as the option. Um, I know we hear a lot of times, especially um, in schools and things, a lot of times they're teaching that the church or that Christianity has been a negative influence in the world. And you point out in your book, like, the exact opposite is true.
1: Oh, of course. Uh, Can you
0: explain how the church has been on the front lines of serving the most vulnerable?
1: Well, you, you look at just about any institution that is helping mankind today. It has its birth in the church. You, I mean, uh, and you don't have to just take my word for it. You can do your own historical research. I mean, pretty well all health care of any kind was birthed in the church. The hmm. church pro- provided the first clinics, the first hospitals, and still today, in many countries of the world, the only or at least the best health care is provided. Through the church. The church invented education. Many of the best schools that you could name, some of the greatest, you know, like the Harvards of the world.
0: Even Harvard once, was originally exactly, a Christian, right? Was
1: once, uh, yeah, a Christian education center. The The church has gotten a bad rap by people that don't know it, understand it, or like it. And so they blame everything on the church when actually they themselves are recipients of the generosity and the the innovation of the church.
0: Yeah, I know. I I see that too, like when I am in foster meetings and things like that. Most of the foster parents that I see are Christians. Yes. Yeah.
1: Even here in Canada. you, You look at the, you know, in the early the early days of history. So, so in the time of Christ or the time following Christ, those early first couple of hundred years, the church grew rapidly, but it didn't grow because of door-to-door evangelism or social media or whatever. It grew because the early Christians were taught by Christ and then by the, the apostles and others they were taught to care for the oppressed for the needy for the poor so wherever there was someone in need the church was there to help and in those days in those days it was totally uncommon for people to help other people even in a family it was uncommon for a family member to help another family member it was just a dog eat dog every man for themselves world So when these strangers came by to help, when someone was sick or someone was hurt or someone was in need, when they came by to help, they were curious what their motivation was and conversations took place. And it was in those conversations that they shared their faith in in Christ, they shared the gospel. And that's what fueled the, the growth of the early church was the acts of kindness mixed with the, the words of hope. So what we have done over the years, we have separated those two. So you either do works of kindness or you do words. Hmm. And what I tried to bring out in my book is, no, 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 That's we've got bad. it wrong. We've got to bring it together. You have to have both, both the proclamation of the gospel by word and the declaration of the gospel.
0: Now I see um, in churches, and especially in Canada, and I think in the states too, this is happening, where even our churches are beginning to have uh, the social justice gospel, which is actually just replacing the gospel in our churches, um, where they're just doing social things and helping, but they are not preaching the gospel anymore. Um, you talked about the modernist and the fundamentalist. Could you explain the difference between those two?
1: Well, the fundamentalist says all you do is preach. You know, and that, that's – if you look at history, church history, you will find that for, well, now, generations, uh, most mission organizations concentrated on the preaching of the gospel. So missionaries were sent around the the world, they preached the gospel, and the goal was to get as many people converted as possible. They didn't spend much time, in some cases any time, in helping to alleviate the suffering of the people, because it was viewed that as long as they're right with God, at least when they die of starvation, they're going to heaven. Then you have the modernists who feel, oh no, no, that, that pendulum has to go the other direction you're actually being offensive if you bring the gospel into
0: Right, that's what I hear a lot. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, you're exactly. You have no right. You have no right to tell people how to believe or think. You no. just as a good human being, you just should be serving them, caring for their physical, emotional needs. So we have bought we have bought that as a as a church by and large, and we have slimmed down the gospel component and so typical to life the pendulum either swings one way far or the other it it very seldom lands in the middle so what i call for in my book is to bring that pendulum to the middle let's encompass both sides of that equation and let's do a holistic ministry and you know where i got the idea from
0: where
1: you'll never guess Jesus Christ. That's a, <laughs> That's a good one. place to That's go. <laughs> but you, look at, you look at his life, right? He, mm-hmm. he, he balanced both. There, there wasn't a physical need that he didn't attempt to overcome to meet. But he never did it in isolation. Nor did he ever just tell people they must be born again and not care for their needs. He was very strategic in every move he made. And that's why I call the title of my book Strategic Compassion because we need to have compassion. We must have compassion, but we must be more deliberate and more strategic and not just waste our resources. We've we've come to believe that the answer to the to poverty is more money. Right. When, it's hard to imagine more money going to the to poverty. I mean, governments allocate billions of dollars mm-hmm. a year to poverty, and it's it's very sad the lack of impact that we see. So it's hard to imagine that that alone is the answer. It's part of the equation, but only a small part.
0: You can see too, like uh, I love studying um, church history, and you can see the early missionaries. You know, our Hudson Taylor. Um, Amy Carmichael, that they really had that balance, right? Like they were preaching the gospel, but yes. they were also, um, you know, rescuing girls from the temple and, yeah. um, like, stopping wives from being burned alive when their husbands died and things like that. Sure. So they were, yeah, like our early missionaries were doing both of those things so well.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and that's that's the model we've gotten away from, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, we're we we've been taught. The church, I'm saying, the church. We have been taught by society this whole concept of, of inclusiveness. You know, we
0: mm-hmm.
1: we everybody's equal and everything's equal and every and and you know, as we as we said earlier and you agreed to, we we've, we've been lulled to believe that it's offensive to talk okay. about Christ. Well, if you look at all the poverty alleviation methodologies in the world today, you will find unequivocally that those that have a Christ component are having the highest social impact.
0: Hmm. That's really good.
1: Because when people's hearts change, right. their character changes, their surroundings change, their village change, their country changes. But when you leave that piece out, you are just putting band-aids on sores and they're festering and they're getting worse and worse.
0: Well, our time is almost up here. Um, I have one final question for you. So as I was reading through this book, I mean, I think that every pastor needs to have this book, Um, definitely. I think it should even be in our um, classes for people studying to be a pastor. But if you're the person in the pew and you're reading this book, and you think, okay, I just realized that a lot of the programs in our church is meeting physical needs of our community, but we're eliminating the gospel. So what does the person in the pew do? What would you give the advice to, to the mom who's reading this book?
1: I think the person in the pew be, begins with themselves. So we, you know, like everything starts at home. So we, we, take, we take an inventory of what, what am I doing? How am I using my resources, both of my money, my time, my energy? How are we doing as a family? What, what are we doing as a family, and how can we do more of this and less of that? So more of this, meaning be more strategic and be more gospel-centric, more Christ-centered. How can we do more of that? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of Christian families— are giving tons of resources to, to work to organizations that have no kingdom impact whatsoever. Right. And it, it boggles my mind to say, why would you use the limited resources God has entrusted to you to fund things that aren't of God? So that's where it starts. And then I would say, then you start managing upwards. So you start talking to your pastor, you start talking to your church leaders, and you start encouraging them when they're talking about their mission Sunday or their mission strategies. Start asking questions. How does this impact the kingdom? Or why doesn't this impact the kingdom? Why are we doing this if it doesn't impact the kingdom? My experience over these 35 years with churches in Canada is when churches really address this and they make the necessary changes in their mission policies and strategies, their mission offerings go through the roof.
0: Yeah, I can see
1: that. Because people, they know that's right. Mm -hmm. And they get empowered and impassioned by it. And they give more and they do more.
0: Wow. Yeah, that. I, I could see for myself personally, I could see that I would be more, I'm more excited about giving commissions when I hear about people receiving Christ and their lives really changed. Than, um yeah. And I see that too. One of the things I notice with compassion is that even with the pictures that we get sent, it's always happy faces, right? It's not like, look at this poor, sad person, give us money. <laughs> and I, I appreciate that about compassion.
1: Uh, absolutely. And that's very strategic because First of all, who of us, you or I, would want our picture taken at our worst? Right. And why would we use guilt? Because that's really what it is. Yeah. It's guilt and, and manipulation. When you take a picture of a child in a destitute situation, you know, swollen belly flies all over their face, mm-hmm. and you, you you, then promote that picture, uh, That's that's just a, a guilt mechanism. And that never is what God intended for us to do. We never help the poor because we feel sorry for them. We help the poor because we love them.
0: Oh, that's Yeah, that's such a good way of looking at it. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Oh, um, very encouraging, <laughs>
1: very encouraging. I'm glad you read the book. I can yeah. tell you did.
0: And I'm going to I'm send great. it out, but I, I definitely want everyone to read this book. So where would you tell people to find this book?
1: Well, they can find it on Amazon, or okay. they can go. They can go. We've created a website for the book strategiccompassion.ca. All right. And uh, you can order the book there. Plus you can sign up for my insiders club and get a monthly email with a little video teaching as I take time that I didn't have in the book to to, to go down some rabbit trails and, and talk and teach about some uh, other related subjects that the book just has a brief mention of.
0: All right. So we will put all of that um, links to all of that up so that people can get that. Thank you so Uh much. So that was my interview with Barry Slonwhite. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. There is so much wisdom there. I am going to be right now. I'm going to go and I'm going to sign up for that newsletter for sure. That sounds amazing. And I would encourage all of you to read this book and then pass it along to others to read. Next week, we'll be back with more history behind the news. But we're going to be having more of these special interview episodes uh, as time goes by. So I will see you guys all next week. Have a great week.